This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. The basic narrative of the Lincoln assassination is well known even to school children. What has been obscured is the motivation for the act by John Wilkes Booth, which remains widely misunderstood. It's been 160 years after that shot from his pocket pistol echoed through the crowded Ford Theater. In a riveting new book, John Roadhamel shows how, as Lincoln's commitment to emancipation and racial equity grew, so did rage in John Wilkes Booth. This is the first book to explicitly name white supremacy as the motivation for Lincoln's assassination. The book is America's Original Sin. The author is John Roadhamel, and he joins us now. Why is the story just now coming out? Well, thank you for having me. I don't know that the story is just now coming out as far as historians are concerned. It's uh, no surprise that uh, to historians that Lincoln is, is, uh, that uh, Booth was a white supremacist and that was his motivation for killing uh, Lincoln. But among the general public in the popular culture, I think both the Civil War and the Lincoln assassination is... uh, is is very much misunderstood. It appears that most Americans today do not believe that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. And that's simply erroneous. Uh, slavery was the cause, not just the not just one of the causes, but it was the cause. And at the time everybody knew that, including the Southerners. They said that they were leaving the Union in order to defend slavery and to protect themselves against Negro, what they called Negro equality. And that's a white supremacist belief. The white supremacists at the time believed that if Blacks weren't kept in slavery, subjected to that kind of degradation, they would be equal to whites. Equality would result in interracial marriage that would result in biracial children and the doom of the white race. So they thought slavery was important, not just as a labor system, but to keep uh, white supremacy alive and to prevent the so-called pollution of the so-called white race. Um, uh, And the Lincoln assassination is similarly, similarly misunderstood in that it was carried out for explicitly stated political motives, which included the defense of the white race. And yet Booth is often uh, in popular culture dismissed as a drunken, crazy actor who did this for no particular reason. And again, that, that takes out, that takes white supremacy out of the equation, whereas that ideology was the one of the principal motives in the constellation of motives that that Booth had for killing Lincoln. John, you said this has not been a really big secret among historians like you, but you have really done some significant research and put this out now. It is 2021. We are eight months past what we saw as somewhat of an insurrection in our nation's capital, where many believe it was a group of white supremacists who sought to overthrow the American government to keep in place the former president. Talk to us about the significance of this book today. Well, I'd like to disclaim any 
any uh, specialization in early 21st century America. My, I kind of end in 1877, but I will, I will speculate a little bit. Uh, it's a very similar ideology. Uh, what has changed is, of course, is slavery's been dead for 160 years. White supremacists, 100 before the Civil War, were glad to have black people around so long as they were slaves. It seems to me a lot of white supremacists today want some kind of separate white nation state that would exclude people of color. So that's one difference. The other difference is that today, white supremacists are a, an ex, an, a minority of extremists. They're radical. They're not very many of them. And I believe and I hope that most Americans reject their beliefs. But we, we think of crazy people with shaved heads and swastika tattoos. 160 years ago, white supremacy was a respectable and very commonly held belief. So we've made some progress in that sense, at least. Speak about the, um, the concept of slavery as America's original sin. It is something that you keep in the title of your book. Yeah, well, that that uh, title actually comes from no less a person than James Madison, the father of the Constitution. He lamented the dreadful fruitfulness of the original sin of African slavery in a letter he wrote to Lafayette. So uh, it's not a very original title. People considered white supremacy and slavery to have been the nation's original sin for a long time. But that's, of course, uh, that's that's the where the title comes from. Uh, white supremacy grew out of slavery. And when the time came, white supremacy brought about the Civil War and the end of slavery. And then when the war was over, white supremacy tended to betray the emancipationist legacy of the war. Uh, I think the nature of the war has been lost. The, the, White Southerners lost the war, but they've sort of won the peace because they persuaded everyone that race is not a, the important issue, that they, that their ancestors, their Confederate ancestors went to war to, to defend states' rights or to protest against industrialization or against tariffs. When in point of fact, it's very clear that slavery was the reason for the Civil War. So, uh, there has been a, 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 a big misunderstanding there that seems to persist. The book is, in a sense, a dual biography of Lincoln and, and Booth. Uh, I start with both of them in their childhoods, and you can see how their trajectories uh, uh, converge as Lincoln moved rather slowly toward emancipation and toward equal rights and voting rights for African-Americans, Booth became more and more angry until he reached the point where he was angry enough to kill. He'd been conspiring against Lincoln for about a year. And that evening at Ford's Theater on April 14th, 1865, was just a, a good opportunity. He looked for other chances to kill Lincoln. This was the first time he'd been able to get close to him. So he did act. Their trajectories intersected at that point. It has a name today such called white supremacy. What would it have been called in the 1860s? Just the way of the South? 
it would have been called the peculiar institution of African slavery. And African, the, the vice president, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy gave a speech uh, right as the Civil War was breaking out where he began by lamenting the failings of the uh, founders of the United States, the statesmen of, of 1776, because they had been so wrong. They had declared in their Declaration of Independence that all people are created equal, quote, all men are created equal. And Stevens, speaking in 1861, said, that's one of the worst mistakes ever, anyone ever made. Jefferson was crazy. Uh, black people are inferior to white people, and we are going to base that Negro white supremacy uh, is going to be the cornerstone, that's the word he used, the cornerstone of our new Southern Republic. So um, I'm not sure that white supremacists today say that black people are inferior. I think they just say they don't like black people very much. So maybe that's a, a slight difference too. What is your hope that readers will take away from this parallel biography of both John Wilkes Booth and his evolution into white supremacy and the murder, the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln? Well, I just, I, 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 I don't think this will happen. I don't think the book will accomplish it likely, but I'd like, to see some of these misapprehensions about the nature of the Civil War and about the importance of race in American history and about the reasons for the Lincoln assassination, I'd like to see those misapprehensions cleared up. I'd like to enlighten the public, but I'm, I'm not that optimistic that this one book will do that. Do you believe it will start a conversation that needs to be had? I would hope so. Um, actually, the conversation is sort of going on at the moment anyway, so it's perhaps a contribution to that, that discussion. Uh, there's obviously a lot of controversy today about, about the teaching of these things in the public schools. I don't know much about the curricula, but from what you get in the news, there are confrontations at local school boards and so forth. They're calling what what they denounce is is what they're calling critical race theory, which is uh, kind of an esoteric uh, uh, legal theory, as far as I can see. But what they really mean is any teaching about the importance of race in American history. They're trying to exclude that, as far as I can see. And if I understand you and your writings correctly, you believe that that is critical in the teaching of American history and how we began and got to where we are today. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily endorse the 1619 project, but I think that white supremacy has been a theme in American history for an important theme uh, for 400 years. Do you see a day where white supremacy is eradicated or evolves from where we are today uh, into something where we are, as I think President Obama said at John Lewis's funeral, you know, working toward that more perfect union? Well, that's certainly a, cons a consummation devoutly to be wished. Um, I, I just, uh, nobody can predict the future and certainly I can't. So I'm gonna pass on that, I'm sorry. 
But you'd like to see a day when we got along a little bit better than we do now, right? Oh, oh, certainly. I think we all want that. John, I, I might have asked you this, but I'm going to ask you it again. So as, as, as a teaching tool, which obviously this is, but for anyone who is a student of history, wants to learn more and know more, uh, what are you hoping that readers will glean from the research that you have done in these two stories combined this morning? Well, I think uh, what I said, some idea of the, the real causes of the Civil War and the real causes of the Lincoln assassination. I also think just as a kind of a detective story, as a kind of a crime story, it's uh, it's a good read because you can follow the progress of the plot. And you can also see how uh, really grossly irresponsible Abraham Lincoln was about safeguarding himself. He, he knew that he got death threats. He got hundreds of death threats. He knew he was in danger of assassination, and yet he continued to take these risks. And eventually, um, that resulted in his death. Uh, Stanton, the war secretary, urged him strongly not to go to the theater that night, and yet he went. And uh, I think part of it was the sort of 19th century cult of, of manliness. He didn't want to appear to be a coward. He didn't want to look like he was uh, afraid. And uh, it's no one knows what would have happened if Lincoln had lived, but the man that that succeeded him to the presidency, Andrew Johnson, was a disaster. He was a white supremacist and did everything he could to reverse the emancipationist legacy of the Civil War. So I don't know what would have happened. I don't know if we could have avoided the KKK and all of that, but certainly if Lincoln had lived, he was a master politician. He would have, um, you know, he, he might've been able to do, uh, have a more positive outcome to reconstruction than what history actually gave us. Exactly. So in that sense, in yes. that sense, John Wilkes Booth did not die in vain. He would have been pleased with the result. Well, the book is America's Original Sin. The author is John Roadhamel, historian. I appreciate you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Welcome back. We are beginning to get out and about a little bit more. And if you are a guest to the Hammonds House Museum, you have an amazing and unique opportunity to see artwork that is rarely on display. The exhibit, Exhibiting Culture, highlights from the Hammonds House Museum collection. Our guest today is the Hammonds House Museum Executive Director and Chief Curator, Karen Comer Lowe. This exhibit is available to you from now until the end of January. Karen, thank you for making time to see us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Tell me about what went into putting together this exhibit. So I recently started um, at the museum June 1st and I had been an employee there before. I had the opportunity to work with Ed Spriggs, who was the first executive director who founded the museum. And during that time, I was able to observe and learn from Ed, you know, the mission of the museum and really to see African-American artists of all kinds come through those doors um, who are of significance now. And I remember when those artists will come and when works will be added to the permanent collection. Since that time, just as a patron and guest more so, 
of the museum, um, I noticed that the exhibitions were more contemporary exhibitions of contemporary artists. And so after starting there, I thought it would be important that we reintroduce ourselves. You know, we've all been shut down because of the pandemic. And this was a way of reintroducing ourselves to the public as a collecting institution. And so I really wanted to go in, look at the permanent collection and pull some of the most important works that we have, um, which are like the Bill Trailer drawings and the Nellie Mae Rose and um, the Elizabeth Catlett pieces, et cetera. Um, we have one of the most significant collections of African-American art in the country. And this was really an opportunity to show Atlanta and those who come in to Atlanta, what we have and in, in the foundation that we were built on. We have so many new people in our community. Share with us a bit of the background of the Hammonds House Museum. Yes, so the uh, Hannah House Museum was started in 1988 um, by Edward Spriggs, who was a director at the Studio Museum in Harlem who had moved here to Atlanta. It is um, the former home of Dr. O.T. Hammonds, and Dr. Hammonds was a, an anesthesiologist and a collector and a patron of the arts, and he built the house, renovated the house, lived in it for a short time and passed away in 1985. After passing away, um, that's when the home was made available to several arts institutions. And that's when Ed Spriggs expressed interest in having it as a museum. And he worked in tandem with Fulton County who owns the, the house itself um, to restructure it as a museum. And so that permanent collection that I just spoke about, many of the works in that collection were collected by Dr. Hammonds during his lifetime. Talk to us about some of these rare pieces of art that the doctor collected that will once again be on display in this particular exhibit. There's so many special pieces. It's hard for me to think of where to even start. Um, I have to tell you in pulling together the works, it was so exciting for me to discover exactly what we had in, in the archives. And so um, I'll start with Charles White. Um, we have this exciting Charles White plate that was collected by the doctor that has this etching there on the plate um, that is in tandem with every drawing that Charles White ever done. Charles White was known for his drawings. And when you see this plate, it's extraordinary you know it's something that like I've never seen so many people have come in and reacted to that we also have works by Elizabeth Catlett um, and Elizabeth Catlett was this, it was a significant and is a significant African-American female artist whose works uh, speak to the strength of the black woman and we have this mother and child sculpture that she created um, that's um, the mother with the child inside of the um, of the sculpture itself, and so um, there's so many other works: Benny Andrews, Hell Woodruff, Bill Trailer, Nellie Mae Rowe. Um, so many incredible works, and Romare Bearden. I, I can't forget the Beardens because Dr. Hammonds and Romare Bearden. Um, we're friends. And so we have one special piece where 
Romare wrote a note on the artwork to Dr. Hammonds, and that is also on exhibit. And so there's so many jewels here for people to see. And you have a Jacob Lawrence as well, don't you? Absolutely. Yes, we do. We do have a Jacob Lawrence. Like I said, there's so many that it's um it's it's hard to to kind of focus on one because each and every one of these works are so special and significant to the culture. How difficult was it for you to identify the pieces to be included in this current exhibition? It was a challenge. You know, um, we have so many important works um, in our collection. And I really wanted to highlight the masterworks that we have so that people would understand the foundation that we stand on. You know, um, these are some of the most important artists in African-American art history. Um, and these artists are included in museums all over the world. And we have them in our collection right here in Atlanta. I can't forget the James Vanderzee photographs. That's something else that you must take a look at when you come by. So overall, there are how many hundreds of pieces in, in, the, in, the, in the collection at the Hammonds House? Over 400 pieces in the collection, and we're still growing. Is the Hammonds House Museum a place where current collectors of great African-American cultural art who might be thinking about what becomes of their collection when they're not here anymore? They, do they donate to you guys? Is that something we, you would like? That is something that I would like. Um, we do on occasion have donations that come um, for, for one reason or another, and that is one of the best ways for us as a small institution to grow the collection. So absolutely, I would love for everyone to consider Hammond's House Museum. Beyond coming through and appreciating the exhibit, or perhaps being a collector who at some point in the future might have a great work to donate to the Hammond's House Museum, in what other ways might our community rally around Hammond's House and continue to support you all? You know, we are always looking for volunteers. Um, that's a great way to, to get involved. And then join the Hammond South, become a member. You know, we are, like I said, a nonprofit museum. And so um, we do look for people to join, you know, to become members. Um, we have many fundraising opportunities. If you don't want to become a member, you can donate to us. You can go on our website, click a button and decide how much you'd like to give. And we also have um, just programs and all kinds of ways that people can get involved. We have a monthly family day that is free to the public where we bring in many different kinds of cultural activities for families to experience and you have an opportunity to experience the museum itself with your families. So that's something that we do on a regular basis. So the first step is following us on social media. That's the best way for you to find out what's going on at the museum and become a member if you're excited about the things that we do. Do you guys ever have uh, classes or workshops or things where someone who is a novice about African-American art and culture, but wants to learn more and can do so by actually looking at the work, can do that at Hammond's House? Absolutely, we do have, and I'm actually um, I'm in the process of planning um, a few workshops that should be coming up in 2022 that would teach people how to look at art, teach people about some of those names that I just mentioned, um, 
uh, who these artists are and, and why they are important. And so we do have some of those activities coming up. Well, it's a great opportunity to explore incredible artwork by some of the world's premier African-American artists, to listen to engaging artist interviews on rotation in the museum, and also to enjoy a stroll through the new artist garden, which is beautiful. Uh, again, to plan your visit, we just send you to the website, hammondshouse.org. And again, Karen Comer-Lowe invites you to follow her and follow Hammond's House Museum on social media. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program produced with you in mind. If there's a guest or an issue you'd like to hear me explore, I'd hope you'd let me know. The easiest way to connect with me is on social media. Just slip me a DM or send me a message. Search Condus Presley on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And yeah, I know you're asking, how do you spell Condus? C-O-N-D-A-C-E. And Presley has two S's. That's P-R-E-S-S-L-E-Y. Friends, I appreciate your listening. Be sure to listen again next week at the same time as we explore new perspectives. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.